So at any given time, there's eight people in space at max. So when I say large, I'm thinking, you know, if we can double that to 20, that would be a significant achievement. But our goal is to have 100 people, 100 tourists going to space every week. Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. My guest today on Talk Design is Tim Alatori. Tim has a architecture firm in California called Doman. And whilst that's really, really cool and he does really great stuff, we've got something a lot more exciting to talk about that because it's so future visioned. He's also a partner in Orbital Assembly Corp. Now, I'm not going to tell you too much about what that means, but it's outer space, trust me. Tim, welcome to Talk Design. I'm so excited for this chat. It's going to be really fascinating. Thank you for making time to be here. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, cool, man. Um, a couple of quick questions just to give people a bit of runway. Tell us a little bit about Doman and why you're an architect. What 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 happened that you were born, you know, you were at school, and then all of a sudden you went, I'm going to draw pictures and get passionate about that for a living? So that, I'm so glad you asked that question because there's a fun little story behind it. I have been good at math my whole life. Um, it's just come really naturally to me. My sister struggled so much with math in school, and she used to get really upset at me because I just I just got it. It just clicked. And I've been really good at drawing and artistic, and I enjoyed creating things. I was always building forts, playing with Legos. And I was in probably fourth grade. I was sitting in class. I had finished my math homework really quickly. And I was sitting there, I was drawing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. I had drawn all four of them from memory. And my teacher came by and said, wow, you know, Tim, you're, you're a really good artist and you're good at math. Have you ever thought about being an architect? And I hadn't. I'd never even thought, I, I didn't really know what an architect was. Um, my grandfather, he was a contractor, a general contractor, built stuff all throughout the, the Western United States for decades. But I never really thought about who actually designed the buildings. And so I looked into it. And the more I got into it, the more I learned about it, the more I, I've just loved architecture. And my high school had a really good drafting program. I was able to take four years of vocational drafting. I got a vocational certificate and got my first job at an architecture firm when I was 16. You know, I started wow. sweeping floors. Then they had me doing copies. And then I was doing CAD work. I was like 16 and a half and working on uh, plans for high schools and, and middle schools. And, and and I worked with them off and on through college. But when I went away to college, I went to Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. Um, I really wanted to do more because when I was at school, I, was, I missed being in the office. I missed drawing and creating things that were actually getting built. So a friend of mine right. and I, we started our own little drafting service and uh, doing house plans. And the very first project I ever got was for the friend, a friend of mine. Her mom wanted to remodel her house. And... She probably paid me on like brownies and 10 bucks. You know, I mean, I basically did it for free, but it was my first solo job. And I learned so much on that project. And I learned that I could do this uh, on my own, right? I knew I had a lot to learn, yeah. but I knew that I could figure it out. So I got through college. I went and I worked for a number of different architects over the next several years. I got my architecture license. And then shortly after getting my license, a friend of mine and I, we were playing in a band uh, in San Francisco. I was a drummer. He was a bass guitarist. And yep. uh, he was an architect as well. We'd studied for the exams together. And he told me, hey, I got all these like projects people are approaching me to do now that I got my license. 
it's too much for me to do. Do you want to partner up and we can start our own firm? And I How thought cool. about it and I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, this seems like a perfect <laughs> opportunity for me to, to jump and make that, make that big step. And so we did, we started our own little architecture firm uh, at first, just working out of our houses. And then we had this like warehouse space where we had, it was two rooms and every morning we'd come in and we'd have to sweep out the dead cockroaches. There was no window. <laughs> um, it was just this little hole in the wall. We were embarrassed to have clients come see us. So we always went out to them, I'm right? going to say it's employee benefits, was it, to go and sweep up cockroaches. And as you say, yeah, yeah how, do you, how do you have um, clients come and see you when you've got an environment like that? Yeah, we, we didn't. We said, oh, we'll come to you. Yeah, we don't mind making job site visits. <laughs> we'll come to you. <laughs> we love that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, we just we went into it with the idea of just giving people excellent service and really listening and responding to people's needs and not with a preconceived agenda. And we just got really busy. And soon we were hiring staff. We moved to a bigger building. And then um, my partner at the time, he had some personal issues and some family conflicts where he had to, to quit work for a while. And so I bought him out and I, I rebranded the company as Domum. And, uh, yep. and it's been now, you know, it's been about a decade that I've been running the firm and uh, just onward and upward. We have, uh, we're actually right now building our own new facility. It's going to be a 10,000 square foot freestanding building. We designed it and uh, uh, we're getting ready to start construction in a couple of weeks. Uh, I've got staff in several offices. We've got, uh, you know, we're doing many millions of dollars worth of work every year and just building stuff all over the West United States. So, you know, I look back on where we were with cockroach covered floors to where we're at today. And, and it's just been, a, it's been a fun journey and it's, it's one adventure after another. I just love it. Yeah. I, I love the fact that, you know, at 16, you were drawing plans as well. Like you were, you were, you were in the workforce as such. And that's just such a short circuit when you think of people who, you know, come out of school at maybe 18 um, and then go and do their study. And then you, you, that they, they haven't really got anywhere near that experience up and you've done four years already, you know, sort of that's yeah, pretty amazing. In, in the United States, becoming a licensed architect is a long path. Uh, when I got my license, there was nine or 10 standardized national tests. California had an oral interview process you had to go through and uh, you had to do a numbers of years of internship. And so most of my friends who I graduated college with um, didn't get their architecture licenses for five to 10 years after I did. And so that head start allowed me to take my exams while I was still in college. And I got out of college, had a couple mm -hmm. more years to finish up some exams and I was licensed. So yeah, it really was a short circuit. I was able to push up a lot of uh, that timetable there. Have you, have you ever read um, Malcolm Gladwell's book? I think it's The Tipping Point where he talks about the kids that are a certain age when they are in school and if they started early in the year so they're the oldest kid in the class as their, their actual age and when they start and how all of a sudden, say in some sports, they get a whole nother season that other kids who were born in the middle of the year don't get. And so they're already got this behind them. And when they go into professional sports, they're, they're a season ahead just because of the age they joined school at. And that's sort of a similar thing. You go, people would die to be where you're at 10 years from now. Um, and yet you've already jumped that far forward. Well, and I think it all comes back to that teacher I had in elementary school who planted that idea in my head. Because when I was figuring out what classes I want to do in high school, I already knew what I wanted to do for my career. 
And yeah. my kids, uh, I have, I have teenage kids as well right now. And, and they're not, one of them knows kind of what he wants to do. My other's not so sure, you know, it, it's, it's hard sometimes just know what you want to do. And I was fortunate to not only have the idea planted in my head, but have it resonate with me where I became very focused at very young. I think probably also that the um, disciplines are like, um, you know, being great at math is, is an, an easy thing because it, it, when I say easy thing, it's a thing that has great focus in it as well. It, uh, it's something that if you're not s- struggling with it, you can actually do analytics on such a wide scale because math gives you that ability to, to, you know, have analytics. And I think that's another point that makes a difference in the makeup of who you are as a person. Yeah. Well, that's one of the fun things I like about architecture is you do have that analytical side dealing with, you know, there's, there's so much analysis that goes into a building, but then also you have just the creativity and the artistry of it. And it just, you know, itches both sides of, of my passions. You know, I, I can kind of, some days I focus more on the analytical side and the systems. Sometimes I focus more on the artistry of it and the, the human experience yeah. and, you know, blending those two together. I think we're all in architecture because of that, right? Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, whilst I'm not um, a, a great mathematician, I certainly get analytics and, and part of my problem solving thing is this, you know, high high level of analytics and creativity that you can apply to it. And I really get that feeling that when you look at something like architecture and design in general, there is a massive amount of analytics. You've got to be prepared to dig. You've got to be prepared to really look at what makes the difference and then be empathetic to that as well, because often it's not you as the end user. Um, it, sometimes it's you as the end user, but often it's not. And then that analytics and, and coupled with that empathy and then put that into artistic, you know, use that whole artistic gambit makes the difference of things. Yeah, I think you just hit something else that I really enjoy too about what we do is is that human, that empathetic side of it. And yeah. it's really satisfying for me to to understand my client and then be able to deliver something that fills a void or enriches their lives in some ways, you know, whether it's a yeah. house or... Uh, you know their business, um, or or even something that makes them money, but it 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 fulfills something for them, and and that's fulfilling for me too. You know, see them. Uh, of course, of course, it's hand in glove, isn't it? And and right. you both grow from the experience, and you even grow closer from the experience. I think. Oh yeah. A lot of what happens with that. Yeah. Yeah. I know that when I do client meetings. Um, we will often just talk about their business. You know, I I sort of joke about this. The design's easy. Um, It's actually understanding the person that's the complexity. Once we've got that design kind of set, it's not that it's easy, but it comes very easily to probably highly creative or or analytical and creative people. Um, And then it's exploring it and finding out the nuances for the people. Well, and that's the next, yeah, that's the next chapter of Domum. Uh, we've been, uh, so I, we're kind of at this place now where we're just chugging along. Things are good. And so we're, we're mixing it up. You know, how can we do better? What's the next step? And we've been working for the last couple of weeks. Um, it's our new pivot here, really trying to understand our clients better. Uh, we've our new tagline and what we're trying to pivot to is we're, uh, evidence-based happiness designers. And so we are, uh, in fact, we, we just had a big, long meeting we're going to start tracking all sorts of metrics about our clients. And that's going to start with the pre-meeting 
We're going to have our prospective clients fill out a questionnaire and find out what makes them tick, what things bring them joy, what things um, motivate and, and, and push them. And then we're developing our system, we're modifying our system to where we can give them service and a product based on what their internal drivers are. Yeah, so, wow. Yeah, and so we, we're evidence-based, right? So we've got a whole matrix we're developing. We've got uh, software. We're plugging it all into our project management systems and everything to where every client can get a personalized, not only design, but also an experience working with us. Yeah, so that you can um, communicate with them in the right way and yeah, essentially speak their language, touch yeah. those points. Yeah, I mean, just one one example. We have one client that we've been working with who doesn't really want a whole lot of updates. They they like to sit down with us, give us their ideas, give us some time, and when we're ready to show them something, have them you know we'll present it to them. They don't need yeah. a lot of updates. They just like just surprise me when it's ready. We have another client who wants weekly updates. They want to see the progress. They want to be, even if they're not making any decisions, they just want to know what's going on. Yeah. They they, they want optics. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so part of our system is figuring that out early on to where they're not getting frustrated because we're treating them like a different type of client. You know, we're giving them service that's very tailored to what's matched to them. So what do you do with that when take, say, for instance, like um, my wife and I, and um, Becky is, um, she's like a business coach and she's like high, you know, analytical, highly empathetic type person. And she wants a lot of control of understanding of what's going on, even in the background. She just likes to know that that thing's ticking along. Whereas I'm the guy that you just described before. Yep. Let me know that you're going to see, I'm going to see you in two weeks and then shock the hell out of me that's what i'm excited about i want the i want the surprise and i want the mind challenge of being game on all of a sudden um i want all that side of it but she would be like what the hell am i going to this meeting for because i don't know that they've done anything yet right so do you split the communication you know you know we have we have not solved that problem yet uh, first we <laughs> first step is identify those issues um so we did have a client, um, we, we finished, we did a custom home for them. And yep. and that was the exact scenario. The husband and the wife had very different approaches to the project, not only how they wanted us to, to deal with them, but also just the finished project. And so yep. the husband, he was very trusting of us. He was like, yeah, just give me, you know, regular updates and just keep me informed of what's going on. The wife wanted nothing to do with the project. She says, well, this is what I want. Just get me what I want at the end and just, I'm trusting my husband to take care of it. Well, we got to, <laughs> we got really far down in the process and then found out she had all sorts of wish list things that she had never told us. Right. And so, <laughs> I've been and, there. Uh, yeah, I mean, she was very concerned, hyper concerned about privacy and having um, secluded spaces and not having her neighbors have any view of anything that was going on in their property. Um, she really had issues with even people being in her house during construction. Like she didn't want the workers to know what wow. the house looked like. Um, and we didn't find any of this out until fairly late. And so, uh, you know, had we understood that a little better up front, we could have given them a project that addressed those things early on. So, so part of our new system is trying to get that profile out of our clients before we start um, and, uh, and then addressing that early on. It, it's such an interesting thing, you know, because one of the things that I do to, to try and help with this 
is we have a, a wish list um, document that is like a, a prompt, a wish, a wish list prompt. And my instructions are that you write your wish list separately and then you weight them in three categories from I won't live without it to, you know, the project won't go ahead if I don't have this, um, to through to if you can get this for me, you'd just be in within my budget, you'd be an amazing genius. And there's only really those three points. Then only when you've written them separately, should you come together and create a third list. And then I want to see all three lists when we sit down. I want to understand what was hidden for one and it's never been discussed. And I asked them this thing. I go, so, you know, you guys have been together for a while in, in this relationship. So what did you learn about each other that you hadn't um, ever discussed before through this process? And they laugh at me. And so not all, but lots of people yeah. just sit back and laugh and go, oh, my God, he wants her or she wants her. And I'm like, how cool is that? Wow, okay, there's, there's part of our challenge. How do, we, how do we get you both what you need here? Yeah, de- dealing with married couples is probably the hardest hardest type of client we work with. We we also work with business owners and developers as well, which uh, tend to be a little more unified in their approach to things. What, what yeah, because doing- they've got a driver of money that's um, overriding as opposed to emotion. Right. Yeah. Well, what we're doing with our system though now is we've we've always done something very similar to what you're describing, but now we're getting more uh, into like the virtues and human needs and goals. Um, yep. more, more high level abstract concepts as opposed and to values, values, yes. those kind of things. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Do you no. use any particular, um, any particular profiling type tools for that? Yeah, we have a suite of them that we're, we're picking and choosing which parts we want to use. There's, um, a design document. I can't remember off the top of my head now who, who created it, but it's called, uh, uh, the happiness deck. And yep there's a, a series of several hundred different cards that go through like all the different aspects of what bring people happiness. And, uh, it was, it's a, it's a free tool. Anybody could download it and use it. So we've used that along with some other, um, books on happiness and human psychology that were, 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 uh, you know, tailoring to architecture. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like absolutely. there's there's some things that just don't apply to architecture, you know, like uh yeah. uh physical intimacy. Um you know, it's just yeah, it's not, exactly. We're not well, it depends what you're designing. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, let's segue with that physical intimacy one because um, you know, people have been locked up in their homes with COVID. Yeah. And uh that's probably had either an adverse or a beneficial reaction on physical intimacy. And I want to segue across to something that is spaces for space and um, your Orbital Assembly Corporation. Tell me a bit about that and how Doman, or better still you, went, this is where I'm headed. Um, I'm going out of space. Yeah, that that's... Uh, that's a lengthy, <laughs> I can, I can talk about that for ages. Um, the, the short, the short answer is, uh, Domum was hired by a group of engineers to create some interior designs for a space station concept they were developing. And, uh-huh. and, uh, very quickly in that process, I became really good friends with, with this group and they had, uh, they have a lot of background with NASA and JPL. You know, they've built uh, one of the engineers has basically participated in pretty much every unmanned 
uh, mission for the last like 30 years. Uh, his wife ran the wow. mission and he was a chief science uh, technology officer on it. And I mean, it really, really experienced people, but there's really no um, significant movement inside any space agency to develop large habitats in space. Uh, NASA, uh, the European Space Agency, Japanese Space Agency, JAXA, uh, they're all focused more on scientific research and um, now they're trying to pivot towards exploration, but there's no real commercial interest for NASA or the ESA to have you know, a colony of 100 people living in low Earth orbit. And I was about to ask when you said large um, developments in space, how many people, like 100, is that the kind of, is there, a, is there a number that you sort of go, well, it's more than 10, but it's less than, you know, a million or well, is there a kind of a target number? Yeah. So this April 2021 will be 60 years since Yuri Gagarich became the first human to orbit the planet. And mm -hmm. in those 60 years, less than 600 people have actually been to space. So that's on average, you know, a hundred people a day, wow. right? And so that's fascinating. I didn't realize it was so low. Yeah. So right now on the International Space Station, they usually have a crew complement of about six to eight people. So at any given time, there's eight yep. people in space at max. So when I say large, I'm thinking, you know, if we can double that to twenty, that would be a significant yep. uh, achievement. But our goal is to have a hundred people, a hundred tourists going to space every week. Uh, with by the end of the decade and to have a space station that has a uh, 400 people living on it uh, and then from there keep building more stations with more people and you know soon having tens if not hundreds of thousands of people living and working in space and uh wow you and i were talking earlier about some of the manufacturing opportunities that exist in microgravity and yeah uh, and there's a lot of pharmaceutical and nanotech that's exploring those options on the international space station but people do not survive well in space. And no, this was this was something that we were talking before about. Yeah, as well. And I was like, really? Stop talking. I'm gonna record this. <laughs> yeah. Well tell us about that. So uh Scott Kelly, uh he's a NASA astronaut, uh, recently spent a year in space, and that's one of the longest medical research experiments we've done with people living in space he has a twin brother who stayed on earth and so they were able to really compare the two wow, of him, wow. him being in space the brother on earth and see what effects happened um, after coming back to earth scott kelly had all sorts of medical issues and some of them persist today including uh, neurological impairments blood clots osteoporosis uh, muscle uh, atrophy you know i mean just yeah. it goes on and on uh, vision impairment uh, brain uh, mass decreases. And and so we know that living long-term in space in, in microgravity or zero gravity, there's no such thing really as zero gravity because there's always <laughs> time space. There's a, little, there's a little bit of gravity. Right. So we, we say microgravity in the space nomenclature, but um, it's just it's not sustainable. And we know that we don't need 1G all the time because every night, hopefully we're getting eight hours of sleep and we're lying down, our heart isn't having to pump blood up, you know, against gravity and our skeletons aren't having to support our, our mass for those eight hours. Sure. Um, yeah. So what we're trying to figure out as a human species is what is that gravity prescription? Like how much gravity do we need to offset all of those side effects? NASA's approach for the last 60 years has been to treat those things with medications, drugs, physical therapy, and, and try to counteract those. Uh, they recently had a scare on the International Space Station where someone had a blood clot 
and they they had some emergency blood thinners on the station, but uh, they they rushed up on the next cargo ship uh, some other medication to clear that blood clot, and then they they evacuated that astronaut back to Earth. Wow! Um, and there's also some risk of blood flow reversal in microgravity. So no one thankfully has died yet in space, but there's been a lot of close calls. And so if we're talking, that's that's pretty fascinating, isn't it? Like just the human condition and how it copes with as you say, microgravity is so critical because, you know, people losing um, cognitive power and stuff like that as well to make decisions properly and, yeah. and so on and so on. It's like, yeah, and you, yeah, can, it's you can survive for, you know, months in microgravity without any serious issues. About three hours in microgravity is when your brain starts to freak out and, and most 90% of astronauts become motion sick and vomit within about three hours of microgravity. But you know, yeah, right. And, and, Three hours is like the the the, the moment. Yeah, it's like okay, enough of this. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But you know, short of that, your body your body's fine. So I'm looking forward to you know doing a two hour jaunt in microgravity and flipping around and doing and somersaults. Um, so how do you counteract that? Well, we, so we need some gravity prescription, and there's a lot of reasons why we would go to space. Uh, tourism is one, but also uh, like we we're talking about, just being able to manufacture in microgravity. Yeah. Sure. Also, yeah. asteroid mining, uh, resource extraction from Moon, Mars, or other planetary bodies, uh, servicing of satellites yep. and spacecraft, uh, interplanetary travel. There's there's lots of reasons to have you know true spaceports where you don't have to have the craft coming back to Earth every time. Earth's gravity yeah, right. is just vicious; it takes so much fuel. Um, so we need artificial gravity. So the easiest way to do that is with a rotating structure. Uh, there's no such thing as gravity right, so like they have in Star Trek, <laughs> at least not yet. So when you yeah, when you say a rotating structure, you mean one that's spinning. Yeah, like 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 the Earth spins. Yeah, well the Earth the Earth spins, but uh, that's not really where gravity comes from. You know, the gravity comes from the mass of the Earth. But we're we're spinning, and you're standing on the inside of the object with your feet facing out kind of like yes, gotcha. kind of like a those those rides at fairs where you stand up against the wall and they spin you and you feel yourself pushed against the sure. side yep um yep centrifugal force is the the term that's used for it although centrifugal force is not real <laughs> although, yeah, some, right. some people argue gravity is not real either but um yeah, well there's people out there to argue everything yeah well physicists they're the ones who argue that so, so what we're doing is we're going to be rotating the body, the this, this station, this, this, this big station, and creating lunar-level gravity on the outer rim of it. And there's, wow. so there's another problem with that, though, uh, which has to do with Coriolis forces. So if your feet and your head have different gravity levels and you stand up quickly, you're going to get really dizzy. And in a rotating right. room, if, you're tr if you turn left or right against the direction of rotation, your inner ear, the fluids start to to move in in unpredictable directions, causing you to get dizzy and, and feel nauseous. And lose balance and stuff. Yeah. yeah, right. So the way you counteract that is decreasing the delta of those forces between your head and your feet. And in order to get that difference smaller, you have to make the station bigger. So the proposed oh, station okay. we're doing is 200 meters in diameter, which means we can get lunar level gravity by going less than two revolutions per minute and based on ah gotcha yeah gotcha it's starting the, the, the math yeah, now i know yeah, you're really good at that but it's starting to make correct. sense for me yeah and and we, yeah. we know astronauts and people who train and there's a lot of centrifuges on earth and they they've figured out that people can tolerate really high rpms up to like eight or nine but it takes yeah. it takes adaptation you, you need to acclimate to it 
And so we want mm-hmm. tourists to be able to come to these stations and not have to go through months of training. You know, you, you decide to book a trip, yeah. you can go out next month or whatever. Um, so we're going, yeah. we're going big and slow and uh, we can go big because launch costs are finally plummeting. For the last 60 years, launch costs have been about 8,000 US dollars per kilogram to orbit. And wow. SpaceX, I mean, it hasn't dropped. <laughs> it's, it's like no, I no, think no. technology would improve and it hasn't. So SpaceX comes out with their Falcon 9, their reusable launch platform, and they're able to launch to orbit for less than $2,000 per kilogram. And their Starship platform, which they're testing right now in Boca Chica, Texas, that's going to be able to launch to orbit for a couple hundred dollars per kilogram. So finally, we have launch costs coming down to where we can get all these materials into space. And Orbital Assembly Corporation is developing the construction tools and methods to build large structures in space quickly and cheaply. So, so what you do like a you know like a, a pre-framed house kind of. Yeah. I know that's simplifying it a little, but essentially um, you would prefabricate everything here um, and it'd be like one of those Ikea packs. It'd arrive up there in, uh, in big chunks and then you'd pull those big chunks together to, you know, like, you know, the green piece fits with the green piece and the you know those kind of things to, to actually then modulize it so then it can go up on multiple shipments. Yeah. And then, yeah, right. Yeah, and, that, and actually, so I've, um, Domum, we do a lot of work with manufactured, pre-manufactured housing. There's a couple of companies that we have yep. partnerships with. And so we have years of experience with that. And we're drawing on that experience for this space station design. So because everything is modularized and like you said, Ikea, right? But instead of us yeah. up there with uh, you know our little tools and, and microgravity trying to put it together, we're developing robots and machines that can automate that process of assembly and get everything ready sure. for the people to show up. Sure. And also, um, you know, like you think on that, obviously a bigger scale, but like where things auto lock together and they, yep. they, they don't necessarily require a lot of, you know, manual person or even robots doing things. It's more checking and alignments and then, you know, seals and stuff like that. So I skipped over one of your earlier questions, Adrian, you had asked how I got yeah. to this AOC point. And what the reason I got kind of so in, into it as I am right now, is we had all these engineers who were really smart about doing stuff. There's no political will to do it. And so we said, hey, we just need to do this. Um, there's no really new technology we're developing. All the technology has been developed. We've had the International Space Station in orbit for 20 years. We know how to live in space. We know how to build stuff. Um, our manufacturing manager, he's built large shipyards and battleships. And I mean, he's he built massive structures. Um, yeah, right. Myself with my construction understanding and you know engineering and architecture background, uh, and so we know how to build this stuff. We just need to package it up and get it up there and build it. We're not inventing anything new. We've been on the International Space Station for 20 years. We know how to live in space. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So it's it's a no brainer. The time has come, and uh, you know we we see a future where we're going to have architects living and working in space, designing structures in space, designing structures on the moon, Mars, you know, wherever in the solar system. If you think about real estate congestion and and property values on Earth. Uh, there's a limited supply of space to build on on Earth, but sure. when you get to orbit, and, and and the real estate industry relies on that, right? Yes, but when you get to orbit, there is no limit. Um, that one of the first things people say when I tell them I'm building a space station is they're like, "Oh, space is so crowded. Are you worried about getting hit by, you know, debris?" Well, <laughs> no. Yeah, we're not. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, saying space is crowded yep. is is a joke. Like it, there's there's millions, yep. there's thousands and thousands of ships out on the open ocean, right? But when you go to the yep. beach, and they don't run into each other very often, right? And they're all headed into the same spots. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and space is even bigger, right? If you think about taking a sphere and you make it bigger, your surface yep. area grows exponent, you know, by a, a factor exponentially as it gets out there. Yeah, uh, Third, to the third power. And so you have multiple altitudes. Um, and the higher you go, the more it's, space you have. So, yeah. And, and it's so layered out that, I mean, you know, you, as you say, you layer up off this base, like if you called earth, you know, the mothership, then you just keep layering out and out and out. And as you say, to be run into, well, I'm sure one day it'll happen, but it's, it's a pretty rare thing. It's, you think of crowded, that's the 405. Right. Yeah. yeah and there, that's crowded. There is orbital debris, and we and the International Space Station has figured out how to deal with that, and we're using the same systems and precautions they are. And, you know, there's management, so you have traffic control. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but the real estate problem goes away. So then uh, the, the constraint there is just material resources. And if we can develop yeah. technology to do asteroid mining and do – in situ production of materials in orbit, the cost of building in space drops exponentially as well. And it, you know, it, it, it when you start to think about like humanity fifty to hundred years out from now, uh, we're on the we're on the cusp of a real transformation where kind of that Star Trek idea of equality of of resources. You know, I don't want to get into too yeah. too philosophical political sphere, but um, as these kind of constrained commodities of like real estate and jobs and production become to an infinite availability, you know, how does that affect the nature of humanity, right? If, if we're no longer resource constrained, uh, how does that transform us as a civilization and as a, you know, as a, as a species? So uh, it's, you know, it's exciting to kind of think about where everything's headed when you start to think about that. It's, it's fascinating, like really, really fascinating. Um, one of the things that came out before when we were talking um, was about what the space station, you know, people going onto the space yeah. station and you were talking about bacteria and stuff. And of course, you know, in microgravity and, and we consider, you know, we live with bacteria here and all the rest. But the point is, is that gravity, as you said, carries that bacteria down to things or, you know, it falls on a surface, you know, whether that be human skin cells or dust of any kind. Um, there's some that's airborne, but a lot of it's just falling constantly anyway. Well, tell me what happens in space with that. You know, like you give me the, I gave you the, um, yeah. the question before, a bit of runway on that and then why it's a problem and then ways that it gets overcome. Yeah. So astronauts who've been to the International Space Station, when they open up that hatch door of the Dragon capsule or the Soyuz craft, whatever they went to to get up there. Yeah. Their nostrils are immediately attacked by what some have described as the smell of like rotting animals, like dead animals. And the oh. reason for that is, and, and your brain adjusts, you know, within an hour or two, you kind of yeah, can sure. tune it out, but, but it's, it's, it's there. It's very present. And the reason for that, like you said, is bacteria, microbes, and moisture, water as well, don't just fall. They, they work their way through every little crack and crevice. So... You know, you look at the International Space Station and they have all those racks of equipment and computers lining the walls and they have sure. they have padding on the walls for, uh, you know, holding different things. You pull back any one of those pads, you pull out any one of those equipment racks and the back is, is just like the worst mold 
you know, it's basically black mold on all the surfaces. And so wow. they're constantly cleaning on the International Space Station. They're constantly wiping things down. But um, it just gets back there. You can't pull every computer and every rack and every pad off all the time. And so it's just they're, they're constantly fighting this battle against bacteria and uh, fungus. And uh, also, they, they mutate a lot quicker. Bacteria and these microbes, um, they evolve and they, they multiply quicker in microgravity. And so, they, you know, they become resistant. Well, why is that? Why, why do they, why do they um, increase you know, or mutate quicker in, that, in zero gravity? You finally hit a question where I don't know the answer to. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a microbiologist, but uh, this, this, is, this is one yeah, of them right. from smarter people than me. Yeah. Yeah, people who do that stuff. Right. Wow, yeah, yeah. So it's so, it's fascinating and to, to think that that is um that sets the environment in there as well. Yeah. And then you've got the health issues that come with that environment for human beings and how you've got to handle that. Well, yeah, so and we're we're building a station where we want tours to come up, right? And yeah. the Voyager station is the name of a big space station. The, the central area of the rotating station doesn't have any gravity. There's not enough uh, you know, it's a trivial force it's because it's too close to the center. Yeah, yeah. We're, not, we're not spinning fast enough for you to feel any noticeable effects in the center. And so we have essentially a microgravity zone in the middle of the station. So when when you right. when you disembark from your craft, you come into that microgravity area, and we don't want people to be bombarded with the smell of dead animals on their vacation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Welcome to space. Yeah. So, so that whole central area, we're basically treating like, um, you know, a clean room or um, like a surgical operatory, right? Where sure. every yeah. surface is continuous. There's no cracks. There's no back of panels. Everything is hermetically sealed. And, uh, you know, we'll have crews wiping the surfaces down continuously. But that becomes a real challenge to combat that because how do you do light fixtures? How do you have touch control panels? So now we have to engineer, you know, wiring harnesses and things that are sealed to where there can be no uh, molecules or, or moisture passing through them, and you can remove those touch panels and clean behind them periodically, right? So what wire, you know, wireless what systems as well, wherever we can. Yeah. What happens with um with you know things like uh, you know Gore-Tex as a, as a fabric? So I've got a background in clothing where, you know, Gore-Tex is designed to allow moisture. It's like plumber's tape, essentially. It allows moisture in a one-way transaction, but doesn't allow, and it has to get to a certain heat so it evaporates the steam, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it doesn't allow it to come back. But I think that's only because of the size of the, um, and the shape of the hole that uh, it's coming out of. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. We, we've... The, so the strategy I've taken with the interiors in that microgravity area is just to make everything washable and, and uh, non-absorbent, yeah. just just like an operatory yeah. or you know a step above a commercial kitchen, right? Um, sure, like like if you use something like you know say um, Corian Dupont's Corian, you know where it can be, it, it's it's welded, it's a you know, yeah. it's a medical grade surface and all those kinds of things. It's got super high density, can be formed into any shape. But, you know, there's a lot of work in doing that as well. Right. Well, and then also just fabricating those on the ground, you know, we'll have to pay extra careful attention to those sections because we don't want to have anything, tra you know, between the layers. The interior might be sealed, but we don't want to have a whole bunch of growth happening from the yeah, right between those layers. Yeah, it's almost like um, you you know, it's almost like having a, a a womb or something where you know it 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 can be 
sucked out of the inside of it like and so it can grow itself a fresh layer you know like that um um, micro healing stuff you know Mm -hmm. that will actually grow itself wow there's some fascinating stuff that you've got to face to get it uh and i imagine i imagine that the innovation curve on that stuff is so steep it's so so steep on um people that will create the right uh products that that will be able to be used and be um, easily manufactured or not even necessarily easily, but manufactured. There'll be some incredible technology in there. Yeah. One of the, one of the challenges we're facing though, is we're trying to get this all built within the next, uh, well, timer's counting. We want it uh, done by Christmas. We want it, we want it done by the end of the decade. And so we're trying to do it all with existing technologies and existing materials, you know, maybe version 2.0 of the station. We've, worked with some partners and created some new stuff, but uh, we, we don't want to wait around to, to invent something. Yeah. You know? Well, also that, that's just nature of the beast, isn't it? I mean, I think the first space stations or not space stations, but your know, manned aircraft probably still had transistors in them that, you know, now we just, that stuff doesn't exist yeah. anymore. Um, so that's just a, that's just a journey. What if, if you get one built by the end of the decade, the one that you build by the end of the following decade possibly will have no resemblance yeah. in the sense of material, materials on it. Well, and once you have a plot, yeah, once we have a platform like this built too, uh, people start to come up with new, new things on their own. Sure. Uh, just sure, just, especially if it's commercialized. Oh yeah. I mean, just, just the talk of the station, we had somebody approach us the other day who's a physical therapist. And he works with rehabilitating people in uh, like swimming pools, right? And he was saying, I want to have a physical therapy business on your station where I could fly people up. They could spend a couple of weeks on your station or maybe a month, do physical therapy in a low gravity environment. We could do so much more. We could help them so much more if we didn't have the limitations of a swimming pool, but we had a lower gravity. And you know, wow. that was something we hadn't thought about before. We're like, wow, yeah, that could be a whole side business where you... You know, you have physical yeah. therapy that happens on this in space. So, you know, there's creative people yeah, uh, that are going to come up with all sorts of stuff we've never even thought of. How fascinating is that? I mean, it's it's in in you know the evolution of sort of like uh, innovation. There's also creation, yeah. you know, and and there's creation's very very rare. Innovation's very you know regular, like it happens a lot. And with that, you will I imagine you will hit points of creation um where things have never been done a certain way before and you will find things you know like when they found the molecule that is what makes fuel you know benzene yeah and when they found that molecule and they looked at it and they went we haven't seen anything like this before and then think of what it changed in our world it just changed so much and you'll find things like that constantly um i know from my time of working with airbus that uh we had things where in, in an aircraft, they'd never used um, any of these things before. And you're trying to obviously get it to fly people at some point. Right. Um, but there's composites and stuff that they're inventing constantly. And there's no recorded history of how it'll be done. It's all simulated. And then you've got to actually do it. And then you find out what really happens beyond what you simulate and you could happen. Right. Um, it's a pretty fascinating journey. Yeah, well, and it is fun. It, so... Again, why I got involved with this and, and why I got back into architecture, you're kind of going full circle here. I yeah. love that creative process and I love that challenge of fitting the analytical issues together with the art and the human side of it. And so I see space as just the next challenge, the next evolution of that. 
I know how to design a house. I know how to do a restaurant, bar, self-storage facility, hotel, you know, whatever. Kind of work. You kind of work that stuff out. <laughs> yeah, like I feel confident in all that stuff. So now it's like, okay, what, what, what's the next challenge, right? And and space. Yeah, and it's just um, I, I'm I'm fortunate to be in a position where I can be a pioneer in some of this stuff. But in a few years, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of architects working and building in space. I'm just going to be, you know, one of many. Uh, yeah, yeah. But you're pioneering it, which is. Yeah, I mean, it's got high risk and it's also got high reward in the sense of there's so many things that you will discover. And just even being on the ground before it even gets to space, there'll be so many things. I love um, Elon Musk's fail fast, fail forward strategy as well. Yes. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, we're, we're trying to uh, adapt that as, as much as we can. One huge difference from us and SpaceX is that uh, we don't have a billionaire financing us. We're, we're beholden to yes. shareholders yes. and investors, which have, you know, a little less tolerance for things just blowing up. <laughs> <laughs> you can't say, come along on Tuesday and we're going to show you how we smash this thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I know we spent a hundred million, but we're going to show you how we wreck it. Yeah. <laughs> but, there, but there is, I, I think Musk has changed that whole paradigm of what businesses can do. And, and he's, yeah. You've shown that, yeah, you fail and, and you might lose some hardware, but you learn from it and you iterate quickly and you're not afraid to pivot. You don't get too con- attached to any one idea and you get yeah. you get to the end destination a lot faster. Uh, case in point I- is SpaceX's Dragon capsule versus Boeing Starliner. Uh, Boeing yeah. is, uh, you know, kind of dyed in the wool, old school aerospace company. They've got their their procedures and their checks and, you know. But they've and they've been doing it a certain way for so many years, right? That they that they all their systems and all their cultural thinking is based on that. I mean, even you know, like you think of the the different divisions of things like Skunk Works and stuff like that from the different yeah. from Lockheed and stuff, where they just go, we cannot use old thinking to solve new problems. We need new thinking to solve new problems. And, and I think a lot of that comes from. NASA's risk aversion too. After the Apollo program, NASA became really risk averse because they were afraid of losing funding. I was talking yeah. with a NASA engineer a couple months ago. Uh, he he works here at a NASA facility in California, and we were talking about the the station concept and you know bouncing around ideas. And he said uh, his his expertise really is in uh, thermal protection and thermal system. Uh-huh. So SpaceX brought him down to give his thoughts on what thermal system they should use for the Dragon capsule. And uh, he said, with NASA, typically the process is everybody comes into a room, you introduce each other, you kind of get to know who's on the team. Then you go back, everyone creates their proposals, they write a white paper. You spend a couple months reviewing all the white papers, a selection committee will do a risk, you know, cost benefit analysis uh, on the different proposals. You have a few more meetings to kind of narrow them down to one choice. Then you have, you know, a final review. Yeah, final four review. months into the process at this point. Yeah, so yeah. It might take two two or three years to pick the thermal yeah. system for a, a, a project, right? So he was expecting this meeting with SpaceX to be kind of a meet and greet sort of thing. So he comes he comes to this meeting at SpaceX's headquarters down in Hawthorne, California. And Elon Musk is sitting at one end of the table and he's kind of leaning back in his chair. And uh, I can't remember who he said was running the meeting, but the person running the meeting just kind of went around the room and said, okay, you know, what are your ideas? And so they go around the whole room, you know, people introduce themselves, say, hey, this is my idea. This is what I think. And um, my friend who works for NASA, he, he wasn't expecting to comment. He hadn't prepared anything. He hadn't done any remarks. And, and, uh, and then they get around the table and, and Elon Musk says, he points to him and says, well, well what do you think? 
And he, he was completely caught off guard. And he said, well, um, you know, this is what we've done in the past. You know, I hear what everybody here is saying. This is kind of my take on it. And, and he said, I got done talking and Elon Musk just folded his arms, kind of pushed his chair back and just stared at me. And he said it was the most unnerving thing. He said, he's, he, he, said he felt like he was staring at me forever. And then all of a sudden he jumps up, slaps his hand on the table, points at me and says, we're doing that and walks out of the room. And he said, and that was it. <laughs> so that was a selection process. And he said, uh, and that's the system they're using on Dragon Capsule. And, and uh, It's my money and I'll spend it how I like. Well, yeah. He said what happens though is like Musk, he's really good at kind of taking in all of the data and information and he thinks it through. He says he was, he was analyzing everything that everybody said. And he th- said, yeah, let's, that's it. Let's go for it. You know, and, and, but then he's not afraid to pivot either. Cause like SpaceX, they did originally with Starship, yeah. they were going to do carbon fiber. They had spent millions of dollars in developing these big carbon fiber rigs and, and ovens to, to bake it. And then, you know, one day Musk said, you know, this isn't working. Scrap it. Let's go to steel. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, he wasn't afraid to lose that sunk cost. And, and I think those are the types of lessons I, that we're trying to take is decide quickly, but not be afraid to, to pivot. Yeah, he also knows, like, I mean, he's because he, he is the genius he is, but he also goes, you know what, if we stop using that carbon fiber, you know, enclaving system, that's fine. We can sell that to somebody else or we can set up a division here that does that. I'll use that at Tesla or, right. there's, you know, these guys could use one of those. And, um, you know, we, we've probably developed some technology in there as well. We've got a few patents yeah. um, and we can sell those as well. He's not thinking like in a, just a lineal fashion, he's, he's so broadly thinking and he can, like you said, touch on so many points that he can go, you know, that sounds new. We've never been there before. The rest of it sounds solid. We can do that because it's not like, you know, we can take it that way. We're not, we're not risking the farm ever. I think that's one of his other genius points. He does, he does take big, big, big risks, but he's in his mind, they aren't big, big risks. They're just in ours because we're not used to um, being able to operate like that. But he's he's thinking so big, yep. so big. And so they're not big risks. They're little steps that take you. It's walking, um, you know, and then there's points when he probably breaks into a jog and a few sprints. But, um, yeah, he's it, it's within his cognitive uh, ability to play at that level. Yeah. It's incredible. Well, and if you look at any of the real innovators throughout history, um, you know, recent history, Steve Jobs, uh, for sure. Yeah. They're, they're not yeah. afraid to commit uh, and pivot and, um, yeah. and, and take those risks. And, and I think sometimes, especially, you know, business owners, when we have a small business and we have to feed our families and keep our staff paid, it's, it's mm-hmm. scary to, to make those big pivots. But um, if you go th- into it with the right mindset and the right preparation, there can be huge, huge payoffs. Um, and the right people around you. Yeah. yeah, the right people around you get you. You know, having the right uh, mentors, team. You know, people to bounce stuff off. Um, yeah, and you have to have that company. Yeah, I imagine too. what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man! That is the most fascinating architectural chat I've had so far. <laughs> well, we barely touched the surface. Ab- we didn't get into the uh, recreation gyms, oh. the, the, uh, the HVAC and air water power processing systems, the kitchen and food service, the hotel, <laughs> so much more. Absolutely. <laughs> so what we should do is we should do this on a sort of semi-regular basis um, where we go, you know what, there's all this other stuff that we can eke out on this and people can go through and just keep listening too. So in the audience can keep going, oh, okay, well, Tim's going to talk about this next step of what happens here and, you know, where we can dig into extra pieces about it because it's going to be a, a journey 
oh, yeah. Um, yeah. that's going to have so many fun things. I'd love to record that journey along the way just on the podcast. I'm sure you're capturing it in lots of ways. But what a fascinating subject and groundbreaking and pioneering as well. Um, and then you just come right back to the Doman thing of, um, you know, happiness, your ev- evidence-based happiness architecture. And you go, okay, cool. That's going to be infused into what you're doing even in the space station because it's part of your values and how you think. So yeah, there's a lot to be said for that as well. Right. And and the challenge here is, uh, you know, running two companies because I, I love my architecture firm and my staff here. Uh, it's yeah. my baby. And so that, that pivot to happiness is is the next step for that as well, right? Keeping it interesting for yeah. me and uh, getting better at our craft. And, and, and also um, engaging your consumer on a on a completely different well not a completely different but on a different level it's part of what's been in your dna already what it is is actually going you know it, it's about serving them at a much higher rate and that's what we're here to do anyway is serve each other on the planet you know like yeah. it's it's not all take it's all give so well we um, have that on that yeah we have that mentality that we we are servants we give and if yeah. if you give um it's it's a lot easier to ask, <laughs> so, so <laughs> when, when, we, when we want something like money, you know, it's a lot easier to ask for that. Yeah, because we know we've given. I love that. That's a really good. That is a key tip. You know, that is a key tip. Make sure you've given, um, and then it's okay to ask as well. But uh, make sure that you've, you're giving. Man, I've loved it. Absolutely loved it, Tim. Thank you so much for making the time. We will um, post all your socials and stuff like that as well. And let's make a, a, another time to go through another phase of this. And uh, we'll, we'll talk after this and make some notes and go, okay, what could we do that's another phase of this and another phase and then just sort of lock in something so we're talking about it regularly. Yeah, that sounds um, great. Yeah, in the next fantastic. couple months, we're going to be demonstrating our first uh, large-scale space construction hardware. It's a ground demonstrator, but we're going to be building 70 meters of truss. Uh, it's a two meter by two wow. meter truss. We're going to build it in about, we're telling everybody less than 90 minutes. I think the way we've got it tuned right now, we might even be able to break 30 minutes. So, um, wow. you know, probably following that event, we can touch base again and like kind of recap lessons learned from that. And we can. T- that'd be, that'd be sensational. Yeah. Cool, man. Let's align our calendars. Yeah. Tim, thank you so much. Go and enjoy your day. And um, I will talk to you again very soon. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adrian. Appreciate it. It's been fun. Take care, buddy. Yeah, it's been great fun. Cheers, man. Hi, my name is Richard Petrie. And if you're a designer who's frustrated by not winning the type of projects with clients who really value great design, go to a new webinar training I'm going to give you where I'll teach you how to win higher value design projects where fees is not the number one priority. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design.